Before we start today, I want to take the time to thank you all for listening and subscribing to the show. I'd love if you could give the show a shout out on social media. So I have a challenge for everyone that's been going on this month. Tag me on Twitter or Instagram and mention the show. I'm getting some cool stickers printed up for the podcast. And for everyone that mentions the show and tags me in a post, from now until the end of August, I'll send you a Space Shot sticker. Remember, mention the episode you're listening to and tag me, at John Molnix, and you'll get a sticker plus my thanks. Now let's get to today's episode. This is The Space Shot, episode 83 for August 5th, 2017. Mars missions, nukes, and Jupiter. Hey everyone, welcome to The Space Shot, your daily space history, pop culture, and news fix. I'm John Molnix. First off for today's episode, I want to finish talking about the Phoenix Lander. The information that this lander gathered helped scientists understand the Martian climate history and composition in greater detail. Because the lander wasn't mobile, it didn't need wheels and motors, and it was able to carry more science instruments as a result of that. The science instruments on Phoenix, quote, precisely measured isotopes of carbon and oxygen in the carbon dioxide of the Martian atmosphere. Isotopes are variants of the same element with different atomic weights, and this NASA article continues that, quote, Isotopes can be used as a chemical signature that can tell us where something came from and what kind of events it has experienced, said Paul Niles, a space scientist at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. I'll link to this article in the show notes, but it goes on to say that the chemical signature that was detected suggests that liquid water had existed at temperatures near freezing on the Martian surface. Finding evidence of more recent chemical interactions is important because it gives us a more complete understanding of Mars's environmental history. In addition to studying the water history of Mars, Phoenix found evidence of perchlorate. Perchlorate is used in the production of things like solid rocket fuel, matches, fireworks, and interestingly enough, it's also in aircraft emergency oxygen generators. Hopefully you'll never have to use the emergency oxygen mask on an airplane while you're flying, but if you do, you will be breathing oxygen that's been generated by a chemical process involving perchlorate. The Phoenix Lander also had the Canadian Laser Instrument, and it was used to study the Martian atmosphere. It recorded snow falling from ice clouds, among many other things. The cameras on the lander also captured over 25,000 pictures of everything from ice clouds to expansive vistas around the landing site. The mission came to an end after Phoenix completed its primary science objectives, and contact with the lander was accomplished for the last time on November 2, 2008. We're going to stay on Mars for the next piece of history. On August 5, 2012, the Curiosity rover landed on the surface of Mars. Curiosity is the largest Mars rover to date and has been exploring the Martian surface for five years. After a 350 million mile journey, Curiosity touched down within a mile and a half from its target. Not a bad shot considering the distances that were involved. Curiosity has science objectives that examine biology, geology, geochemistry, planetary processes, and surface radiation levels. 
NASA described Curiosity's EDL, or Entry, Descent, and Landing Maneuver, as, quote, seven minutes of terror. And when you watch the video that I'm linking to in the show notes, you will understand why. Landing Curiosity on the planet is the most complex landing that's ever been attempted on Mars, and watching the video on how it was accomplished is awesome, so you definitely should check it out. During the research I was doing for these missions, I was looking into the computers that power the robotic explorers in our solar system. In the case of Curiosity, it's using a radiation-hardened version of a PowerPC processor similar in speed and function to the ones that were used in old Apple iMac G3 computers, which entered production in 1998. This processor is also at the heart of the Juno spacecraft that's currently orbiting Jupiter. The processing requirements of spacecraft are quite a bit different from the smartphone you're most likely using to listen to this podcast with. These spacecraft don't need to power high-definition monitors or provide incredible graphics. They just need to function in harsh environments for a long time and do that while using the least amount of power possible. Curiosity has been able to perform more science than any other rover before it since it's not reliant on solar power. Instead, Curiosity uses an RTG, or radioisotope thermoelectric generator, to power and heat the rover's systems. The cameras onboard Curiosity are second to none on the Martian surface right now, and seeing pictures of the vast prairies stretching out before mountain ranges like the Tetons and the Rocky Mountains is replaced with the Martian landscape that's spread out before the massive 18,000-foot peak of Mount Sharp. Curiosity has had its mission extended indefinitely, and tomorrow I'm going to talk more about that mission. On August 5th, 1969, the Mariner 7 probe made its closest approach to Mars, flying by the planet and taking pictures before speeding past. Mariners 6 and 7 were launched within a month of each other and completed the first dual mission to the Red Planet. The spacecraft flew over the Martian equator and South Pole regions and analyzed, quote, atmosphere and surface with remote sensors as well as recording and relaying hundreds of pictures. By chance, both flew over cratered regions and missed the giant northern volcanoes and the equatorial Grand Canyon that was discovered later. Now that we've finished with Martian history today, let's head on over to Jupiter. On August 5th, 2011, the Juno spacecraft launched on a United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket, which was in the vehicle's 551 configuration. The first 5 in the 551 stands for a 5-meter payload fairing, the second 5 stands for 5 solid rocket boosters, and the 1 at the end stands for a single engine for the upper Centaur stage. The 551 is the most powerful configuration of the Atlas rocket that's ever been flown, and all of that capability was required to send Juno on a course for Jupiter. I talked a bit about Juno in episode 57, so download that episode if you want to know more. In the coming days, I will talk a little bit more about Juno as time permits, just because that spacecraft has been in the news recently. I've got a few more pieces of history I want to cover before I go today. On this day in 1930, Neil Armstrong was born. Armstrong is best known for being the first person to walk on the moon, but he was also an engineer, test pilot, and astronaut, among many other things. 
Hundreds of years from now, it's easy to think about how his name will be remembered since he was the first person to set foot on a world that wasn't Earth. Sadly, Armstrong passed away in 2012. On August 5th, 2014, SpaceX launched an expendable variant of its Falcon 9 rocket that was carrying the AsiaSat-8 satellite into a geostationary transfer orbit. AsiaSat-8 is a commercial communications satellite that serves customers in Asia and the Middle East, providing TV services and internet access. The last piece of history for today the Test Ban Treaty of 1963 prohibits nuclear weapons tests from taking place in the atmosphere, space, and underwater. Nuclear testing in space contributed to the failure of satellites like Telstar, and I talked about that in episodes 57, 58, and 59. I'm linking to a U.S. Department of State article on this treaty, so be sure to check out the show notes. It wasn't just satellites that were being damaged by radiation that had people concerned. As the State Department article states, in a very matter-of-fact way, quote, As knowledge of the nature and effects of fallout increased, and as it became apparent that no region was untouched by radioactive debris, the issue of continued nuclear tests drew widened and intensified public attention. Apprehension was expressed about the possibility of a cumulative contamination of the environment and also of a resultant genetic damage. Thankfully, no nuclear weapons have been used in outer space as part of an armed conflict. The early tests that affected satellites like Telstar didn't cause widespread damage for satellites because there were so few of them in orbit at the time. Hopefully, we'll never have to worry about the aftermath of a nuclear explosion in space again. Check out the show notes for more information on today's episode and be sure to connect with me on Instagram and Twitter. Find me at John Molnix. I'd love to chat. Let me know what you think of the show by leaving a rating in iTunes. It takes just a minute to leave a rating, and it makes a huge difference by helping even more people find the show. I'd also appreciate if you could share the space shot with your friends, family, and anyone else that enjoys podcasts. Thank you all very much for listening. Tomorrow, we stay curious. I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.